In March 1981, the iconic British rock band Queen toured Argentina. In the capital, Buenos Aires, thousands of fans flocked. Can anybody find somebody? At the same time, a group of homeless people were moving into tracts of land on the outskirts of the city. The squatters had no legal right over the land. It was owned by absentee landlords who tried to fight back and evict the homeless. But the landlords discovered an important lesson. When you're fighting someone who's got nothing to lose, it's going to be a tough fight to win. The squatters mounted a major campaign to stay on the land that made their home. Three years after they moved in, the Argentinian government passed a law that handed the squatters legal title to the land. Some landowners decided to fight the expropriation, claiming they had been insufficiently compensated by the government. Others took the government's offer and moved on with their life. Overnight, some squatters became property owners. Others were left with all the uncertainties of squatting, knowing that a decision by a judge could see them evicted at any moment. It was the perfect natural experiment. So what happened to the two groups over the next 20 years? Today on Changemakers, I'm not in Buenos Aires. Instead, I'm in Bangkok. You might think that if you were a landowner, it would never be in your interests to hand land over to squatters. But today, we've got a story about a remarkable group who are challenging exactly that sort of thinking. Let's go. I'm Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to Changemakers, the podcast telling stories about people changing the world. We are supported by the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy lab. At the same time that the experiment in land titling was occurring in Buenos Aires, a young Thai architect was conducting her own experiment. I was looking for uh, the housing development, a sort of a model in which community would be stronger, community would get together. Her name was Somsuk Bunyabancha. She travelled to Copenhagen, where housing is often shared in cooperatives, thanks to a legal system that makes it easy and popular. Even one big house, maybe three families want to purchase that house together and to have a more collective living, have common cooking, common library or so. You can do so. Uh, They they have that umbrella, uh, I mean legal umbrella, to make uh, the collective living uh, possible. And it doesn't just work for two or three families. Sometimes cooperatives can involve joint ownership by hundreds of families. You chair things and so on. And why you also have your uh, private space huh, of your own family. And you have a larger uh, community like a town where the rural and the urban are mixed together huh, and, and they chair the, uh, the, the work, they chair the, oh, really many things. And Somsuk noticed it wasn't just for the poor. 
It's not only low-income people. What I have seen in Denmark is kind of middle class or higher uh, middle class huh? in, in, in our country as well. So it means, oh, this is the way to build society huh? for the upper-income people as well as the low-income people. Levels of community were nested within one another like babushka dolls. Then they were integrated with the wider city government and all within a legal framework that gave them rights. The thing that struck Somsuk was how much it looked like the squatting communities back home in Bangkok. The link together is not registered as a cooperative as such, but the way in which they link together, they have committees to do this and that. It's really, very interesting, really quite exciting. For a young architecture student, the cooperative model made sense, especially in a city. Most legal systems treat each individual as the basic unit, but in a crowded city, that's a legal fiction. You live together, you protect each other, you help, you lend a hand to your neighbours, huh? you know? As an individual, a city can seem very big, but in a cooperative, the city feels a lot more manageable. So housing cooperative is a legal platform to make that common sharing, living together, also a legal, acceptable process. After she'd finished studying in Copenhagen, Somsuk came back to Thailand, a newly minted architecture graduate brimming with hope, inspired by what she'd seen. It was the beginning of the 1980s and Thailand was very poor, but urbanisation was already taking hold and squatters were moving into any spaces they could find in and around the city of Bangkok. Somsuk got a job with the National Housing Authority, a government body that was aiming to help these squatting communities. The idea was to help makeshift communities upgrade their infrastructure so they had electricity and sanitation, but it required whoever owned the land to agree. Soon after taking the job, she came across one community that was in a difficult position. Now, the community uh, lived there for a long time and being in the land in which, uh, which is left for quite a long time, 800 families. Yeah, that's quite a big community. Around this community, the city was growing and the value of the land they were squatting on was increasing. And then come the time where development are... Uh, surrounded the area, yeah. There, there was a new street cut to the area. There was uh, a new opportunity that land in the area becomes so more and more expensive, yeah. So come the developer who feel that the land will be good to develop for something else. Bangkok already had a process for landlords who wanted to get rid of squatters. It was fairly straightforward and pretty brutal. And then you enter into an eviction process where the developer wants the people to move out and they give some minimal compensation. Remember, many of these families had lived there for years. They figured just because a piece of paper gives the landlord ownership doesn't mean it's right. It's not like the landlord had been using the land. So they decided to fight. Somsuk found herself at the centre of this discussion. They have meeting at 9 o'clock at night, 10 o'clock at night, and you sort of joining that one. Nobody appoint me <laughs> to, to be involved. Huh? You go by yourself and then you participate in the discussion and in facilitating how 
the solution is going to be. So you sort of have some status to help. Although my role is very informal. (laughs) The way Somsuk saw it, they had two options. It means everybody has been dispersed to somewhere else. Or you use the, uh, the need to develop that land as a negotiation point to work together and then to negotiate. The group of people who think we should find solution, more peaceful solution, and to understand what are the problems of the people, what are the problems of the landlord, what are the problems of the developer, and whether we can find a more possible compromise between all these different actors. Some people thought that there was a third route, all-out war. They felt that negotiation was beneath them, that they deserved more. Some of them feel that, well, people live for a long time, they should have the right to own the land or something like that. To Somsuk, it was clear what that position would ultimately mean. You have to adopt violence and put people to jail and, you know, you're going to go into a crash. And you would have the winner and you have a loser and being community people is not going to be the winner so easily. So little by little, discussion by discussion, the community came together and decided to try and negotiate. Getting the landlord to agree was a little trickier. The landlord, uh, of course, was not too comfortable because this is new idea. You talk about land sharing, what? what? Because land owned by them. The community had to make them realise that they had something to lose by not backing down. They make demonstration, the community, in front of the uh, landowner company. Sleep in front of that, you know, for a couple of days. And it's really dangerous. Uh, one of the tactics that the people here always adopt is to block the street. And why blocking the street? But because if you block the street, the, the police will have to come. The police will be unhappy that you block the street because the car cannot go to the lane. So you block it so that the policeman will become a negotiator, will be an intermediary, the middleman who have to talk to the landlord. Direct action created the grounds for a negotiation. Somsuk played the role of a facilitator. And next morning, six o'clock in the morning, <laughs> I went to the organisation, sitting in front of the governor's office <laughs> and tried to uh, report to the governor that I went to the negotiation and I uh, uh, talked uh, uh, on behalf of the National Housing Authority without anybody appointing me, but I was helping the, all the different parties to agree. Yeah. And, and I, I told the governor that I have done that. Luckily, uh, she is a good lady. She said, OK, if, if they agree, then it's, it's OK, no problem. And they did. And little by little, it led to the land sharing. Finally, it sort of ended up uh, on number of 800 units of apartment on one portion of the land, which is allowed, I think, is about 35% of former land and people have the lease and from being unclear or informal, illegal squatters or residents, now they are legal, okay? They are all legal and they have the apartment, which is very affordable. 
the agreement was something like uh, the payment for the apartment will be equivalent to the lowest public housing uh, payment. And the other portion of the land you leave to the landlord. It was a win-win. The community got 35% of the land and legal title, and the landlord got the rest without a protracted battle. Winning that one battle set a precedent for all those that would come after. From this, this kind of case in which the landlord learned how to share the land, it became later on the policy of the organisation. I had the opportunity to talk to some of them later on. So what, uh, what do you feel after some time? Because at, in the beginning, very beginning, you were stand very firm that this is not possible, this is illegal, this is not the way to do, you know. But after this compromise and you could do your project quite quickly and the people have their housing, so what do you think? Uh, and, and, and a few of them were saying, oh, this is a very good arrangement. We were very happy. Yeah. <laughs> so after some time, they even have a good feeling mm. about this more reasonable arrangement. But there was a problem. After she negotiated that first land-sharing agreement at Ramaforte, more cases started to come in. No matter how good you are, when you spend, say, three years, four years doing something, make a change in one project, there may be ten more slums emerge. So what are we doing, you know? Uh, uh, the scale of slum emerging is much faster than the solution. And it's the case in many, many cases. The pace of urbanisation was just too great. Somsuk felt like she was going backwards. There had to be more effective ways to create links that would maximise the gains from their wins. Somsuk felt that the government she worked for should be facilitating solutions at scale that kept pace with the problem. But it wasn't. So Somsuk decided to quit. I told my friend, my good friend who worked in the National Housing Authority, why the hell you want to resign? Because you could do a lot, you make a different project possible. I, I want to resign because I want to do more housing work. This is the National Housing Authority, where else you can do. If the government wasn't going to do it, Somsuk thought she would. We'll be back in a sec. Building power to change the world is a dynamic process, which means it's always helpful to discuss your strategies and refine them. Pick apart what's going right and reflect on how you could be more effective. That's why we've set up the Changemakers Masterclasses. They're small seminars with a maximum of 50 people, presented by me, Amanda Tattersall. We spend a whole day taking a deep dive into one aspect of changemaking. In the first season, we're looking at power, how to build it and wield it, as well as examining the best and worst practices from around the world. We're holding the first ones in Australia in February 2019, in association with Sydney University's Policy Lab, and then heading to Melbourne and several cities in the US and United Kingdom later in the year. So check out the schedule at changemakerspodcast.org slash masterclasses and sign up today. Maximise your impact with Changemakers Masterclasses. We're following the remarkable story of Somsuk Bunyabancha, who started out helping squatter communities negotiate for legal recognition of their land in Bangkok in the 1980s. But she'd run up against a problem. 
We didn't think the way in which the government have been doing or the international agency interven- intervention, this and that, would able to lead to any significant change. Right? Sorry to say. When we do project by project, it's the project of the development agency. It's their pets, their babies, you know. With good reason, because the organization also want to, to do a proper uh, improvement. The other community do not know uh, why and how uh, this particular project developed. So after the group had several occasions being together, and we, we, were, we, we were serious people, I mean, different people were serious people doing their serious work in their country, get together. Why don't we learn from each other and we build uh, a network among ourselves? To that end, Som Sook set up the Asian Coalition for Housing Rights. It brings professionals, community organisations and NGOs together to cross-pollinate ideas for how to develop housing and infrastructure better in urban poor communities. Som Sook's thinking was simple. At the moment, every time a squatter community came to her, it was like they were starting all over again. But what could be different if communities were linked together? Instead of... uh, uh isolated community or organization which is no relationship to each other. It's important to, to build a second tier where they're able to to know each other, to to make a link. Yeah? And, and the second tier, which is a network, can facilitate the different organization into another stage of change. It does this by organising grassroots knowledge sharing. Instead of you do a, a training in a traditional manner in the classroom, you sort of uh, let the participant go to the cloud, OK? Yeah? I, at that time, I already made a study on the causes and effects of slum eviction in Bangkok. So I have a lot of slum information. So once I organise a training course, I let this participant divide into groups and go into these different communities and see what would be the alternatives. <laughs> go to the real thing. The idea was to make the slums problem everyone's problem. You make the whole Asia a university. We invite the community people, the mayor, the government officer, the professor to go together to see things in another country where they can give you the answer, you know? You get stuck because we always have certain political system, political culture uh, to, to fix ourselves and we don't see what are other possibilities. But once you go to another country, oh, they can do it this way. Oh, my goodness, and you, you get that inspiration. By making it everyone's problem, Somsuk started to be able to work at the scale of the problem. It was 1998, and South Korea was due to host the Summer Olympics. To make way for the expected visitors, Seoul had started mass evictions of their squatting communities. At that time, there was the serious problem of eviction in Korea. Yeah, so we feel we should do something for Korea. Yeah. Uh, it's the eviction before the Olympic game at that time. So we send the fact-finding mission. We search for the money, uh, and, and then we organize uh, a team 
of experts going there before the Olympic game, and there was a a good media attraction. Yeah, so we went to different evicted communities and we make press release. We talk to the governments and so on. It was a, quite a good success in terms of uh, what the coalition contribute to the eviction problems and lead to the public housing policy of Korea later on. Okay, so when we came back, we. We were so active and trying to see how we would uh, be a new force of change by being together huh, from different countries. We, we had a few more fact-finding missions. But even though they met with success, over time, there was something wrong with the way they were approaching the problem. We were feeling a little tired with the, the way in which you follow the problems because there are so many problems. If you want to be housing rice. Uh, group and scream, uh, oh, eviction this, eviction that, fine with that. At the end, nobody's going to give you the solution. The trouble was that the problems causing the housing shortages were more fundamental than housing rights. We have to make change to the government. We cannot wait the government to make the change for you because it's not going to come. So people have to wake up. People have to find what are the right direction. Frustrated, Somsuk took a job with a big property developer. Her role was to come up with policy towards squatter communities. Her boss was an economist who used to work for the central bank. He inspired Somsuk to take things in a new direction. He, he's very good about finance system and more on community process, uh, housing and so on. So we worked together as a team. And at that time, I learned about money, finance, fund and so on. So he's in, in that kind of uh, technique, huh? financial technique. You, but he's really interested, very keen on community development. So try to see how money would be an important tool for the community. So I sort of joined him and we proposed to the government to set up a community fund to allow people the tools, financial tools, to do whatever they like. Huh? Somsuk had finally gotten to the heart of the problem. The problem was more fundamental than building houses. Until that moment, the squatters had been largely locked out of the financial system that the landlords had access to. There was no system to allow them to pool their resources and negotiate as a community. But if squatters could access a fund that allowed them to pool their resources and develop some financial clout, things could start to shift. The bank never gave the money to the people they could give to some families. So because no money, that's why there's no development by the people. So once we have the money, now the thing we have to work out is how this money system can correspond to the money system of the people, which is growing, not the, the, the kind of system that people take loans to do something and they cannot pay. They can pay we find a proper way how to make it work and we believe it's going to work. Yeah. So they get together as a saving group, cooperatives, whatever. They build a bank, community-owned bank. One community is one bank, wow. linking all the members into the group. And, and if they want to do something which need more money, you give them the loan, you pump the money into that bank. Yeah community bank, wow. and let them manage together as a group. Poor people can do things together as a group. 
they help each other, and they're bankable as a group. They're not bankable as individual. Thailand had a new government following a military coup. Their new prime minister was looking to modernise. Into this moment of opportunity rose Somsuk with a radical plan. Rather than isolating individuals with mortgages they would never pay back to buy private chunks of land they did not need, they could develop a system that was specific to the Thai understanding of what wealth really means. You don't need to have your own, your own rich or your own personal assets. Uh, you, you, you don't need to feel like gathering, you know, your own wealth. But you are a part of the other and the wealth will be shared with the others. They asked the government for a starting grant of $40 million to establish the Urban Community Development Office. Somsuk's credentials as a housing professional and her bosses as a financial guru created a perfect storm. The government said yes. A new kind of community financing model was born, which could roll out across squatter communities in Asia, empowering people to improve their lives. Any community organisation could be the beneficiary of these funds, so long as they could prove they had the capacity to manage them. Yeah, give the power to the people and let them be the driving force, which they are always being. They build slums, they build houses without any money, without any legal status, without friends, without any support. They build houses all over the place. So they have a lot of energy, ability. So you just understand that energy, ability, and organize it a little bit. Get together, send architects and the other, and see how we make it better, cheaper. But you do it. We are not going to do it. Because if the other people do it for them, it's not that way. So people have to find a way to do it together because it's cheaper, it's better and it uh, follow what they need. Most of the housing by architects, uh, 10 story, this and that, is too boring. Huh? <laughs> 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 yeah, people housing, they always sneak, uh, able to sneak and find space and ways mm-hmm. how to do their housing. Why, why don't we, we go with that energy? Yeah. Yeah, and, and you just facilitate the financial system so they can make use of the finance and uh, as long as they can repair. Yeah. What's yeah. the problem with that? No problem at all. By 2000, over 650 community savings groups had been established throughout Thailand. Housing loans had been provided to 47 housing projects involving 6,400 households. More than 1 billion baht around 25 million US dollars, had been provided in loans and more than half the loans had already been repaid in full. In 2000, the office was merged with the Rural Development Fund to form the Community Organisations Development Institute, or CODI for short. CODI is rolling out an even more ambitious plan called the Ban Man Kong Collective Housing Project. It was a Thai form of the cooperative idea that Somsuk had seen in Copenhagen all those years ago collectively funded community-run housing. Here in Thailand, the circumstances were very different, but the idea of a shared housing economy still had great resonance. I had so many questions about how the project actually transformed the daily lives of people in the squatter communities, so I went and talked to some of the residents. 
The Kolongbar Environmental Development Network is comprised of 15 different communities, totalling 3,800 families, that live along a six-kilometre stretch of canal in downtown Bangkok. Living along the canal, you may have some families who encroach the canals, so people in the city accuse the people here that they obstruct the flow of water and also make the water polluted. So what the community here have to do is get together because otherwise you face eviction. And always, every time there is flooding problem, they always point their finger to the community here. So they get together as a network. In the beginning is a network to protect the environment, clean up the canal, in order to show that instead of you being accused as the ones who make the problems to the canal, now you are the ones who actually clean up the canal. So they get together to clean up the canal and make the water quality better. The network was approached by the Cody officers to be part of the Bangmangkong Collective Housing Project. The 15 communities who joined together in the Environment Cleanup Program are all agreed that they should move into this housing development activity, so they joined together and moved into the housing development activities together as a network. That network of 15 communities operated like a cooperative. Every month, two to three representatives from each community came to a network meeting where members of Cody would be present. They negotiated two things the lease of the land from the Treasury Department to the cooperative and the community upgrading they would do once they got the lease. Find the information, make a plan together. So that's something. It's possible. Cody's role is to get the right heads in the room to help make things happen, to help find solutions. Until now, I would say we have more than two, three hundred housing cooperatives organised to the housing project. The key to this whole thing was that the cooperative model allows a sense of ownership, which other models don't. During all these arrangements, they have their workers to work with the community, but the communities are the owners of the project. This sense of ownership, communal ownership, changes everything. The quality of life changes a lot. Status of the people changes. In the old days when you live in the slums, you have been condemned. You are the lower level, not being recognised by the larger society. But because of the housing project, your status totally changed. Now you are equal. You feel proud being the group of people that have the achievement and there are so many people from outside who come and visit our community. The sense of power generated by ownership extended into other areas of community life as well. Various aspects of children development because in the former days when you live in the slum, sometimes the children don't have the status to go to school or they feel ashamed by living in the slums. They didn't participate well, they are more passive, but after having a better house, quality like this, they like to invite their teachers, the friends, to to visit the house here. Also, they have more motivation to do better studies and want to get higher study. It's an outcome that almost exactly mirrors the experience of Buenos Aires. Remember them at the beginning of the episode? There were two groups of squatters, one who managed to negotiate clear legal title for their land and one group who were left in legal limbo. The group who gained legal title found themselves more prosperous, with better education and health outcomes, less violence and smaller families than those who didn't. The stability that comes from control over where you live is fundamental to how your life pans out. Back in Thailand, another outcome has become apparent. 
members of the cooperative have been inspired not just to engage with the physical state of the community, but with its politics. The leaders have to listen to the members every time they need to make a decision. You have to listen to the members or the ordinaries. The success of the pilot projects meant that in 2005, the Thai government awarded Cody $240 million to continue their work. It's no longer just about housing or about finance. It's so much bigger than that. At the end of the program a few years back, is 215 cities where we actually support in 19 countries. This citywide upgrading. So how we could find a new way in which we can make a platform of change by the people for the people. And this is the only way to make the government better. Somsuk is building the regional foundations for the participatory planning of our cities. She found scale. It only took 40 years. In some way, it's not only to, to get some of the projects on the ground possible, but it's also to build new kind of government system. A new kind of government system should be an open system. Let your people help you <laughs> to manage your city. We, we, you have a lot of uh, conventional government here in Asia where the people who, who are government feel they have the authority. And I have the authority to do everything by myself, which is not the case. Whatever the issue, make community an important actor mm. to do that. Yeah. Not only the government or the private sector. And if we believe that one or two slum communities can find solutions, why not more number of people? So this is a very important direction uh, between the project by the top-down system or the project by the bottom-up people themselves. Little by little, with different contexts, different process, they could go by themselves. Like with everything, it's not without its struggles. Any kind of successful change-making strategy will have its opponents, people who want to keep things as they are. There are politicians who sort of creating different factions in the different organisations. These factions agree with the upgrading. Another faction are not happy with this. So there are political interference a lot more this day which make the present project more complicated. The grey area, like the slum community, are always the place where politicians are influential, taking the advantage because they could support the community something. So the community vote for him, he's sort of taking care kind of a paternalistic system where communities are their members under their parties. But for now, the squatter communities have legitimacy and through Cody, access to the legal mechanisms of the state. Assistance from the police and a friendly army unit stationed nearby is common so that individuals harassed by the underbelly of the political system can seek help. What was once the greatest threat to the stability of squatter communities, the government, has become their greatest ally all because they embarked on a journey of negotiation, not all-out war, all those decades ago in the small community of Ramaforte. Almost 30 years later, that first community that Somsuk helped is still there. These days, the Queen Sirikit Convention Centre now sits across the road. Each week, it plays host to conferences and events from around the world. The city continues to grow around the Ramaforte community. Money and tourists still flow through the area, but on a little patch of land 
800 families have been able to claim and retain the rights of their community to grow as well. Changemakers is hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all our episodes and to catch up on the stories from Series 1. Series 3 will be out in May 2019 and we plan to release Changemaker Chats, interviews with amazing changemakers from time to time across the year. Changemakers is produced and written by me. Our writing team also includes Charles Firth, David Hunt and Amy Farrell. Our audio producers are Alex Cake and Jules Butcher. Our sponsoring organisation is the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy dash lab. We are also supported by Uniting, The Sunrise Project, Australian Marriage Equality and the Organising Cities Project funded by the Halloran Trust based at the University of Sydney. Like us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast and check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all our stories. And don't forget to register for one of our masterclasses if you want to take a deeper dive into the art of changemaking. You'll find all the details on our website.